Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You know, I got this leadership development course out right now, and it's getting fantastic reviews. So I want to tell you a little bit about it because it might be for you. It's called From Boss to Leader, and it teaches emerging leaders and managers those servant leadership skills, the, the everyday stuff that you need to inspire, engage, and motivate your team for high performance, you know, to get bottom line results. Now, we're not just taking anyone for this course. We want to make sure that you're truly invested in your growth as a servant leader. So if you'd like to explore whether this this experience is really for you or your team of managers, visit my website right now, marcelschwantes.com, and click on training. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast. Glad you are here. Please share this episode far and wide with someone in a leadership role. And hey, if you like today's show, please drop us a positive review and maybe even a five-star rating on iTunes. We would be grateful for that. So today we welcome Hitendra Wadhwa, adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where he teaches Columbia's most popular leadership course, the award-winning Personal Leadership and Success. Hitendra is also the founder of Mentora Institute, which is at the forefront of creating a new model of leadership that is agile and authentic and attainable. His research and teaching on personal leadership have been covered all over the place, including Forbes, Fortune, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, among others. He is the author of Inner Mastery, Outer Impact. That's his latest book. And in that book, Hitendra writes about our pursuit of success. And we're going to define the different paths that most of us take to success. And he's going to share with us the idea that all success comes from one place, our inner core. And this is the space of highest potential that lies within each and every one of us. And I can't wait to get into how to activate that inner core. Hitendra has an MBA and PhD in management science from MIT's Sloan School of Management. Dr. Hitendra Wadhwa now joins us. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Wonderful to be here with you and your audience, Marcel. And what a great name for a podcast. Yeah, we kind of we're partial to that name ourselves, Atendra. So, but I appreciate that nod. So, so mm-hmm. we always start at the top with this question. You ready? Yeah, go for it. What's your story? I have, from a very early age, been very drawn to mysticism. You know, the idea that there is some something beyond that. Um, you know, transcends our senses, something that connects me to that star out there that I might see at night and to all of humanity, but even beyond to all of life and the whole universe. And I was about 10 or so when I got very drawn to some of these ideas, both uh, philosophically as well as meditationally, trying to kind of pursue higher consciousness through meditation, seeing my parents get into it, you know, quite actively in their own careers and lives. And yet what happened is that as I started to grow into my teens and then beyond, I kind of like... um 
dichotomize my life. There was that inner life where part of me wanted to be a monk and wanted to pursue these kind of deeper spiritual questions. And and then, uh, you know, kind of got a little bit sidetracked by the other track. And that was the outer track, you know, wanting to pursue, you know, success and attainment and ambition in the world and, you know, excel as best I could, you know, in my own limited ways in academia and then professionally. And then before you know it, I'm in my mid thirties. I've, you know, in the last uh, 15 years before that migrated to America and I started to feel kind of pretty dry in my, in my soul, you know, at the very core mm -hmm. of my being. And, and, and I'm realizing that life is flying by. I'm, I'm in, you know, the fourth decade of my life and I'm nowhere close to fully living it. And so, um, I slowed life down. I transitioned out of consulting and doing startups to coming to Colombia to start teaching, uh, in part to really gain that little free space to experiment a little bit more in my own life as to what is it that I truly wanted to manifest. And, you know, and that led to um, much more meaningful discipline to that other track, you know, the inner track where I studied my meditation practice, took some advanced teachings and uh, Kriya Yoga, this um, form of meditation taught by Yogananda and his uh, Self-Realization Fellowship. I um, reconnected with some of the ashrams and monks I'd known over the years. But at the same time, showing up at Columbia, dressed in a suit, you know, teaching marketing and strategy and all of that. And that is what led about 16 odd years ago for me to really pivot my life away from the usual trappings of business, more into wanting to understand human potential mm. and to understand, um, you know, our work in the context of our life, dissolve those boundaries between, you know, work and life and all of that. And it led to the class, personal leadership and success. And that's over time through both Columbia and the Mentor Institute really manifested into finally making yeah. me figure out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm very grateful now to finally have found this home um, and um, feel a little bit more, yeah, centered, you know, in, 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 my, in my own personal journey as well. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, and there are very few guests, uh, I'll be honest, that, uh, that you know, that I, I don't usually pull out my notebook and and actually get into the, the student's chair. So I'm going to do that today. And so I'm going to I'm going to be one of your students at Columbia in your person in your uh, personal leadership and success class. OK, so if you're watching on YouTube, if you see my head look down, that's because I'm taking notes. I'm writing down um, anything that I that I don't want to miss. So. Let's start from the top, okay? Because you just gave us a, a really good, a, a big hint to what the book is about. Uh, but give us that thirty thousand foot view of the book, and and you know why did you write it specifically in this day and age? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so many of us at some level are, you know, on the one hand, caught up in this trap, right, of uh, society defining for us what you know what we are meant to do, what we ought to do, and how we should measure our self-worth and what will bring us, you know, happiness and, and all of that. You know, some of it is about material attainment. Some of it is about career success. Some of it is about, you know, having a large loving circle of friends and, and family or what have you. You know, but, but all of these are like outer things and you can't like completely control, you know, those things. Mm. And you have some and then you want more and you want more, you know, all of that. Right. And, and, so, and so then we have this other hunger, you know, this hunger from within to want to have more meaning, more autonomy, more freedom, more, you know, more of a capacity to express our authentic true self. And, and so, you know, and, and often there's a battle going on between these two. And sometimes we suppress one, you know, in the interest of the other. Maybe we want to just be focused, just on being true to ourselves. And then we kind of like don't care about what the world thinks about it. And it leads to fractured relationships or 
uh, career limiting moves, you know, in, in our workplace because we like spoke truths in a certain way and then it didn't really get to land very well on others and all of that. And then the other kind of people may choose to just pursue the outer and just be much more tactful and thoughtful and committed to serving and, you know, just making people happy, making society happy. But then on the other hand, they at some point wake up to realizing that they haven't really done much to make themselves happy, mm, mm. you know? And um, so the book really, you know, at its essence is about resolving the conflict, uh, first acknowledging it and surfacing it, and then acknowledging it, but, and then and then resolving it. And the way it's resolved is through, as you said in your introduction, a realization that in fact, the reason why we face attention between what I call outer success and inner success is because we've been kind of looking for this success in all the wrong places. Mm. And if in fact you approach it from your inner core, your journey in life, as well as at work from your inner core, then you create the conditions where A, you feel increasingly more and more authentic, more and more true to yourself, more and more harmonized and aligned with you know who you truly want to be. And B, you also start to create an opportunity for success to come knocking at your door instead of you going to really pursue it on the outside very, very actively on your side. So relationships become more whole and people start to get to be more interested and supportive of your causes and you and, and all of that, right? And so that's the outer success that then ensues as the uh, outcome of that pursuit of the core. Was there a pivotal moment in your life that you could say you struggle with that with that inner conflict, you know, about success going being in all the wrong places? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in some ways, that period during my mid-teens all the way through my 20s and early, early 30s is a period where I kind of a little bit lost my way. I had that, you know, core sort of beliefs and ideas from within, from the more mystical teachings that I was drawn to, but I really wasn't doing justice to them in my outer life. I was kind of assuming that you have to choose between either just a radically you know, renunciate-like sort of like pursuit of, of of truth in life, or you kind of get embroiled and engaged with all of these outer things, and they just have to be different. So in that period, in my early to mid-30s, I just, I reached a certain kind of moment of inner crisis, right, where I just realized, my God, my 20s have just flown by, mm. which means if I just do the math, my 30s will fly by, 40s will fly by, and I only have like a few of these decades, you know, <laughs> left in me. And so that, that was one of those crisis moments. And and I guess like the way I resolved it was to wake up to the realization that if I assume that I have to spend every hour pursuing my outer ambitions, I'm just never going to make space for my inner life. And instead, what I had to do was just take it on faith, take it on faith that if I commit to doing the inner work, if I make space and time for it in a non-negotiable way on the inside, even if it knocks off, let's say, a couple of hours in my day, um, you know, those hours are not like a decrement to the pursuit of outer success, the pursuit of outer goals, how much I can get done on the outside. But somehow the universe will harmonize more with me and the opportunities will be created where the right work will be pursued and the right outcomes and success will be gained on the outside. I just had to take it on faith initially. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. And I'm wondering if you can relate to this. So many leaders, uh, you know, experience that outer success by, quote, climbing the corporate ladder and, uh, you know, where you achieved the success at the top of the mountain. You got your corner office, you got your, 
you know, your fancy car and a uh, house in the suburbs, right? So I want to quote you about uh, from your book. And you said this about leadership. Um, and here it is leadership isn't an outer dispensation. It is an inner choice. The traditional view encourage, encourages you to advance your career so you can maximize your moments of leadership. The view I'm proposing, you say, encourages you, encourages you to advance your character so you can maximize the leadership in your moments. Wow, I had to pause there for a second because just to let it sink in. So character, sp- expand on that a little bit because we we go after those, those you know, the, you talk about the, the outer dispensation of leadership, which at the end of the road, when we look back, isn't really fulfilling for most of us. And, and then there are regrets. Yeah, I, I have been really humbled, you know, over these years as I've become more of a student, you know, of uh, of these ideas, character and leadership and life to discover so many incredible stories, uh, as I'm sure you do here with your guests as well, of just like average everyday folks who have in, you know, some moments, sometimes luminously all through their lives, really shone with like an incredible brilliance in terms of the way they've showed up and engaged positively with um you know, challenges and difficulties and opportunities in the world. And, and you know, as, as one story, you know, that I share in the book, uh, there was this secret service agent who had come to my executive, you know, education class at Columbia. And he he shared the story about how one day he and his wife were in their backyard um, in Washington, D.C. And this man breaks in, you know, from, from, from the bushes, you know, and he has a gun with him and he comes over and points it at them and says, uh, one of you go in and get all your valuables, you know, cash, jewelry, et cetera, and I'll hold the other one hostage. And, and he says, here I am a secret service agent plotting my next move. And then before I can think or say anything, my wife just jumps in and she looks at the man and she says, you know, I can't believe you're doing this. Um, something must be really seriously going wrong in your life. Uh, Otherwise, why would you take such a risk, you know, on your life, on our lives? And and I, I know that you couldn't feel very proud about what you're doing. And it really concerns me to to know that you had to make such a radical move here today. And, you know, my husband and I, we were just going to sit down and drink some wine and eat some, you know, dinner. And why don't you do that? Why don't you put your gun aside? Come here, sit down with us, because I want to hear your story and understand what's going on. I'm really, really concerned. And And the Secret Service agent says, like, I couldn't believe it. This man, he just, he put his gun down and he sat down with us and we had a conversation and, you know, you can imagine it wasn't, you know, a very happy story that there were, there were very painful things about what he had struggled with and what he was going through. And at the end of the dinner, I mean, my, you know, uh, he, he, he actually was reaching out for his gun and my, you know, my, my wife and I looked at him and said, sir, you can leave, but you cannot take your gun. Uh, and so he left without it. And, and and the next morning, there was a knock on the door at our home and it was him. And I was bracing myself a little bit, you know, but but then he said, sir, I just wanted to let you know, I'm not come here for my gun. I, I just wanted to thank you and your wife for what is it that you did for me yesterday, you know? So, you know, if you just use that story as an illustration, I mean, clearly the most empowered person, so to say, you know, in that room at that point or in that backyard was was that gentleman with the gun, you know, and then the most skilled and experienced and, you know, person in the room, qualified person to deal with it was like the <laughs> secret service agent, right? But yeah. 
but it wasn't this these outer dispensations you know it was the inner choice made by his wife his wife know, that made her in that moment really lead really lead and right. so that is an example of how leadership i've discovered through these very humbling and beautiful stories is really an, an inner choice and and where it came from if you think about it is that you know she wasn't really aspiring or pushing herself up some kind of power chain or ladder to want to get more power and more budget more staff and more titles and all of that you know she basically had a certain quality of character yeah that allowed her to pierce through this outer kind of you know very disturbing you know conduct of this man to the inner purity of what he must have that has gotten a little bit soiled and ragged in the context of the kind of life he's been leading so that quality of character in her that allowed her to see that that quality of character in her, in her that allowed her to have the courage to speak yeah. to actually care for him to empathize despite the context to in a relaxed way sit with him to learn more about him to lead the way for all three of them in that very you know strained and you know life threatening situation i mean you know that allowed her to maximize her moments of leadership as in um or, or maximize the leadership the leadership in her moments because even in a moment like that when nobody expected her to lead she just led you yeah. know so if you and i and all of us took that attitude that life in all moments in all situations even in the tenderest most you know happenstance moments of connection with our family or in the most official moments in the highest you know stress moments it's just inviting us to do this one thing you know bring out the best in others and bring out the best in ourselves yeah yeah and that's why you say in your book that that all of life's moments actually become leadership moments if we if we actually are uh, if we have the intuition maybe and the curiosity to explore a situation like the wife of the secret service person did is she activated her empathy and her curiosity and started asking questions right and so yeah. that became a that life moment for her became a leadership moment uh, and she, you know, just kind of rose to the occasion. I, I, it's there's so much depth to that story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I, I love the way you just analyze it because, I, see, these stories are not unfamiliar to us, our listeners, and others, right? Like we come across them sometimes in our own lives, and sometimes, you know, in the media or in a book. Um, what I found really helpful, uh, and that's an encouragement I want to offer our listeners here is to really pause when you uh, hear a story that stirs you from within and um to almost like slow down and watch it frame by frame you know revisit the story analyze it frame by frame put yourself in the other party's shoes what would you have done and now what did they do first what did mm -hmm. they do next literally almost like sentence by sentence you know tune into the energy in that moment and what might be happening and what choices they were making and when we do that you know these stories become very instructive yeah. and we start to realize that wow actually there is an underlying you know secret code or craft here that yeah. you and I and all of us can learn yeah. So I want to segue to what you propose is this inner core. I mentioned it in my introduction, the inner core um, that we should live live by. But before I do that, let me let me summarize what what I believe the thesis of the book is so far. Tell, tell me if I'm right. OK, so it, so when we master our our inner game, um, this is about our character and our inner choices, right? Our pursuit of truth and harmony and and wanting to wanting to relate and connect to other people you know maybe maybe finding justice in in something um so when we get that part right that's our inner game 
we are then free to master our best outer game. And that's the impact that we have in the, on the outside world. Is that is that a fair summary? That's a beautiful summary. It reminds me of this quote that I have, um, you know, from Lao Tzu. And, um, you know, the quote is, break into the peace within, hold attention in stillness, and in the world outside, you will ably master the 10,000 things. Oh. You know, and so um, what happens is, and and you and I both are in the coaching and executive training kind of world. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, at Mentora Institute, when we do some of that kind of work for our clients, um, it's so often that the mindset, you know, in the organization is that, you know, here is where we are as a business. Here is where the world is. We need to have our leaders practice these competencies or these qualities. And they seem to be, you know, proliferating, you know, more and more and more of these that you now need leaders to have. You know, yesterday it was about collaboration. Then it was about innovation. Now it's about the human-centered leader and what have you, right? And it's very quickly it starts to become very onerous, burdensome, almost impossible to acquire. And that's because we are really assuming that the way to acquire them is to take each of them individually and seek to master them from the outside. And that's just nobody going to have the time, the energy, the discipline to do that. In 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 uh, in contrast, the thesis of the book, as this Lao Tzu quote says, and as you so aptly put when you talked about the inner game, you know, before the outer game, is that, in fact, the more you go deep within and really anchor yourself in your core, and seek to express that in all you do. And, you know, we should come back and talk about what we mean by the core. But the more you anchor yourself in the core and express it in all you do, the more you become free from the outside to choose what is the right conduct in a given moment in time. The facial expression, the tone of voice, the speech, should you pause, should you pivot, should you pull, should you push? You know, any or all of that becomes more clarified and you becomes more free to transcend sometimes even your habits and impulses and personality to act in a way that is best in service of your cause. Yeah. And so that gives you the conditions for outer success once you have anchored yourself, you know, in the right place within. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to kind of give you the, the steering wheel here. How would you like to steer us in the direction of kind of describing this this roadmap of of achieving this inner core? I mean, is there a specific way you want to do it? Do you do you take all five and go from purpose down to self-realization or what's what's a good method for you yeah you know i think like the first uh thesis that i want to sort of just put out there is to help everyone just like invite invite us all to introspect for a moment right the thesis i'm offering is that even in a very super divided world you know politically socially and what have you uh today which is painful right um i have not met a single person who would not agree with the following thesis and so let me offer it to you and see if mm -hmm. you know if, if you sync with it which is that within within you is an inner core is a space of highest potential is a place from where your best self arises where when you're there you know you're beyond ego and attachments and insecurities you're like deeply committed you know to something noble and uplifting you're connected with life and with people you're curious and open to growth we're, we're very centered in a joyful state within you know you calm receptive to truth and in realizations that may come to you and and that state of your inner core is something that we drift into and we drift out of and away from you know from time to time we are not there at times and then we can two days later look back and say what was i thinking and how is it that i did that and 
how come I was so constrained by that belief, you know, or something? And and we realized that we had drifted away, you know, away from our core. Uh, and so, so you know, if, if you agree with that thesis, that yeah, it exists. I mean, I, I I'm not sure I'm, you know, even there like five percent of the times, but 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 I've seen glimpses of it, and and there are moments where I rise to that, and I feel very very connected with it. Well, then the you know the journey in basically getting to success and getting to that core can begin because now you have some sense of what is it that you're going after which is how can you activate that state how can you deepen that state and how can you make it ever present in all moments of your life so that everything you do is being informed and energized by by that core now how do you do that um like you've said in in, in the book i've laid out from my from my research you know uh, five energies that you and i we can all cultivate through which to get the the energy of purpose the energy of wisdom of growth of love and of self realization and and it's it's um you know again in, in in the business world sometimes it's a little bit odd for people to be you know focusing on energy rather than behavior but on the other hand if you think about it i mean we all intuitively realize when somebody walks into a room with the wrong energy you know if they have the wrong energy they're just likely to be predisposed to just yeah. reject a certain idea not to collaborate not to be trustworthy not to fully engage be this you know enchanted about you know and so so we know what it's like when you and i and or others either show up with the right energy or not so intuitively we realize that well i've just taken that intuitive idea and i've just like formalized it and structured it <clears throat> into into these five forms of energy right okay and um and so so yes that would be my thesis now again in the book what i do is for each of these energies i offer five stages through which to cultivate you know each of those energies uh, we won't have time necessarily to go through all five of those stages for each of the five energies but that's the you know uh, structure and scaffolding that i found very helpful in our uh, training at mandora as well as in my class at columbia well i'm biased to through a couple of them just for the sake of time. So I'd love to unpack uh, purpose and love. And so talk, talk to us a little bit about purpose from living with purpose and leading with purpose. Purpose is uh, something that all of us at some level or the other hunger for, you know, what is my life meant to stand for and do and what have you. Um, and yet I do want to acknowledge that some of us are in a just basic cruising stage where we're just kind of happy, you know, with like what's transpiring and happening in life or, or we're struggling and unhappy with it, but we just believe and accept this is just the way things are going to be. And I don't have to question it. I just have to keep going through the motions, you know, hoping for a better day. Um, so the first stage then in the pursuit of purpose is what I call stirring you know there's a stirring that comes to, to to you and to me at some point either because of the dryness of a soul like i experienced when after all these years i just wasn't getting to feel life and live life as richly and deeply from the inside as i wanted to or it can come through a certain crisis moment in life where you know you get hit by by something you know like Catherine graham did when her husband committed suicide you know and suddenly she was left to take care of this family heirloom you know the washington post which was a family newspaper and as a woman in the 1960s you know very very unexpectedly had to step into that role of being the ceo of a big business and grew into that role luminously beautifully over the course of the next decade and beyond and became a big force unto herself in the field of journalism and in um, in washington dc so that's a shock to the system thing so they're stirring that stirring typically leads to searching where you start to now investigate reading books talking to certain people that you are drawn to their energy and their way of living um introspecting um taking walks in nature and retreats 
whether it's philosophy or you know or, or role models and others that you study but you're just trying to deep or spirituality right scriptures you know you're trying to just go deep into your soul and figure out what is this relationship between and the world what are the answers to some of these hard questions about you know why do good things happen to bad people or bad things happen to good people or what is life really meant to be and what happens after i die and all of that and then the search then leads to some amount of you know early definition so you start to define you know what i'm starting to figure out a little bit the rules of the game you know the laws of human nature that you know these are the kind of things i value and these i don't these are the things i stand for and these i don't and i'm you know so that's the that's the defining stage and then the fourth is the focusing stage where once some of that definition starts to happen and you start to feel really deeply anchored and connected with the things that you truly stand for and you take joy less in what the society around you is kind of claiming and stating to you that thou shall do this and not do that to instead be more drawn to what your conscience is telling you what your inner stirrings are telling you what that search is revealing to you so that's the definition part and then in the focusing part you start to live by those choices you start to say no to certain things in your life to simplify your life you start to you know gradually affirm certain things more actively in the world you start to negotiate you know with your family and with with your workplace as to okay which of these values of mine are going to be like private i'm just going to quietly pursue them in my confines and privacy of my own life which of them are going to be public i'm just going to have to reveal them to the world this is who i am this is what i'm not going to eat you know from now on or drink from now on or do from now on um and then that focusing ultimately if you stay committed with it should lead to the ultimate final stage of purpose which is fusion and fusion is this magical magical stage where everything everything in your life every moment is imbued with purpose and it's kind of a unified purpose it's not it's not a bucket list of like 17 things that you need to achieve or do and it's not you trying to be you know a good a good boy or a good girl and you know just trying to get to do everything at the same time you made peace with the fact that your energy is and your physical state and your capacities are are bounded you know on 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 planet earth and you have only so much time you made certain choices you are completely fused and committed to those choices and everything that you do will be informed and guided and inspired by those choices and that's that's a beautiful stage to reach for so many of us we haven't reached that stage because oh, for whatever reason where whether it's lack of resources or upbringing uh self-limiting behaviors whatever but is can anyone pursue this this purpose-driven path in life if they choose to well let me give you an example mm-hmm. i had a interaction with well I'll actually give you a different story. I'll tell you a story about a student of mine. She had an interaction with a cab driver in New York City when she was going back from uh the airport JFK to her home in the city and she said that he started to ask her these questions, you know, about her her life and where she went to school and who she dated first and you know etc. and then she's like ah i don't really don't want to have this conversation with him but it's okay, you know, i'm humoring him so i'll i'll offer him some 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 things about my life and she says and then as i get into my uh block like the car turns into my block he breaks off in those last few moments into a poem and it's a poem about me you know about my life with all those things thrown in and she said i'll never forget that moment it was so sweet and uh, i share that story as a way to help us appreciate and understand that you know this man in that moment was he really seeing himself as a cab driver you know was he seeing himself as an entertainer was he seeing himself as a connector was he seeing himself as a creative a poet an artist you know a student of life like who knows right but but somehow he had this elevated sense of values in him and he just wasn't going to allow 
the seeming confines of his material conditions to limit him from mm. fully expressing that value, you know, from fully expressing that value, right? And so to that end, the thesis I want to offer to us is that we may be restricted in terms of what you just asked by our own imagination. Mm. You know, what is it that we can manifest and do in the present moment in the circumstances that the universe has put us in? Now, I think it's a great idea <clears throat> for you and me to aspire to improve our circumstances and conditions. If we find that there are things we want to get to, which will allow greater outer expression of our purpose and our values. And that's kudos to you, you know, change your career, pivot into a whole new direction, move to a different city, even walk away from certain individuals and more towards, you know, certain other people in your life, as and when you can, if that's the right thing for you. But, you know, from time to time, we are going to be restricted to having to work on that project or in that profession or in that organization or to have these people in our family or, you know, live in this neighborhood and what have you. And, you know, I can tell you story upon story, like that cab driver story that reveals the untapped potential that we have in those in those situations to still ask ourselves creatively, what can I do to reorient, you know, my relationships with people to redefine what the real task is that I'm here to perform and to, you know, rethink the meaning behind what it is that, you know, I'm I'm called to do here. Uh, just like that cab driver made his meaning to be about connection, upliftment, and inspiration. Huh. Changed his task to be about poetry and his connection with his passenger, not to be just one of being the driver. Mm, this one's going to stick. We are restricted by our own imagination. So I'm, I'm going to remember that. All right. I want to uncover one more of those five core energies, but let me uh, let me recap the five. If you if you want to get all five folks, get the book Inner Mastery, Outer Impact. So basically, uh, the roadmap to the roadmap to living fully out of your inner core um, are these five. You you want to live out. In other words, you want to be able to express these energies in everything we do. Okay, purpose, wisdom growth, love, and last but not least, self-realization. Um, so before I go into the one I chose, which is obviously biased on my part, is which is love, um, do you have anything else you want to say about the five core energies before we transition to love? I think you put it very well. You know, that's really the essence of the book is um, uh, inviting us to uh, become familiar and activate and just kind of let our inner core shine through by putting these energies into, into action in everything we do. Perfect. Okay. So the love as a core energy, um, I, I want to jump right into the path of love and, 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 and talk about the stages. Sure. Um, so the way I've defined love, which I think syncs very well with your own thinking on it, because uh, I, I love how, how you, are so actively, you know, embracing the importance of this um, energy in 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 life and in work. Uh, the way I define love is that it's about taking joy in other people's joy and finding success in other people's success. And it's not because they stand outside of you, but it's because the universe has actually conspired to make everything be both simultaneously independent and interdependent. In other words, that you are meant not to stand in splendid isolation from the rest of humanity and, and and beyond, but you're meant to intertwine with them in, in beautiful ways so that you both give and you receive. You receive in loads, right? But you also then start to cycle back and give. And then 
over time you grow into a realization that ah you know humanity and life was actually just my own higher self it was my own higher self it was my own higher consciousness and those five stages to get to that you know then become the first stage that i offer is to you know really prepare the soil in other words you know before you can actually make love bloom you want to create the conditions in which it can do so and one of those conditions is like the soil in which you're operating needs to be a very healthy soil and that means that you have to feel adequately and abundantly loved yourself you know there has to be some source a higher power or a circle of friends and family or just remembrances of people who have taught you and mentored you and cared for you in the past or just your sense of your relationship with nature and the universe that gets you to that place where you feel deeply cared for and deeply loved and feel that the universe is on your side the reason why that's important is because the research shows that if you do not have that if you have struggled with feeling a sense of unconditional love for you coming from some source like this then you end up being so consumed and limited by your own hungers that you're just not going to be in a position to offer your best self to the world outside because you know it's like you haven't really had enough oxygen for yourself how are you going to help the child next to you you know in that airplane mm. and so um so you know get to form some relationship with either people around you or role models and mentors from the past or just the universe at large so that's the first one you know prepare the soil by feeling adequately loved as mother teresa once said she said you cannot give what you do not have um the second stage you know of love then is to sow the seeds sow the seeds that will later on bloom into love and those seeds to me are appreciation you know having a mindset through which you are scanning always for the virtues in people and in life and in conditions that you are thrust into to look for the virtues the strengths the beauty the grace there so that you're constantly celebrating what is really yeah just inspiring about about people in life that's appreciation gratitude this notion of recognizing how much is coming to you how much you are not a self-made man or woman but has benefited so much from you know the silent contributions of generations from the past and people who constructed your home and people who have actually at times you know just yeah yeah you know grown the plants that you eat and you know everything else so like living with gratitude abundance a sense that you know that there's there's enough here for everyone you know as gandhi said you know the world has enough to meet everyone's needs everyone's needs but not necessarily to meet everyone's greeds right so how can you have that abundance mindset that that there's no you know just because you help others or do for others or help them progress further in their life doesn't mean that you're going to in any way be stifled in your own growth and then fourth is empathy you know really having a deep attunement with uh, people and life around you so that you can expand your heart you know to tune into what's uh, happening with them as well so that's the second stage mm. the stage of sowing the seeds and what that does is you know what i found that some of the greatest lovers in the world you know people who you see expressing so much love it's not that they were just expressing love they were in love they were in love and they were in love because they had this habit of appreciation and gratitude and empathy and you know an abundance um the third stage then is is um you know is putting out yeah, the stop you for a second cuz what you're saying not necessarily in love in a romantic sense although that's that may be the case you can throw that in there into the equation but when you say in love it's somebody that has a disposition to be just in love with people in in, in general right when you walk out when you go out into the world 
um, you don't you don't have you, you you assume positive intent and you express your love for others by doing the by planting those seeds that you just mentioned gratitude appreciation empathy is that, am I tracking here with when you say uh, you're you have to be in love. You know, the Greeks had, um, I, I don't know all the vocabulary of it, but they had different words for love based on which kind of love you're talking about. And so what you've just said is very important that, you know, we just seem to have in the West right now conflated love with romantic love as though there is only one form of love, right? And that's what you're, you know, slowing me down and making sure that we clarify, you know, that there's romantic love, but there's also love at a much broader, you know, at a much broader level. There's love as in the following, as a story that I heard from, a person very dear to me who worked very closely with Mother Teresa is that she was once having a an audience with a dictator who was a very feared military man, you know, uh, head of this state, you know, this country. And she was, you know, wanting to bring her missionaries of charity there to help serve the poor there. And he comes in and he meets with her. And then he looks at her and she says, he says, Mother, you remind me of my grandmother. And and uh, this friend of mine, she said, like, I, I was a little bit surprised because after all, they were of different race and ethnic backgrounds and all of that. And like, how could how could Mother Teresa even look ever close to his grandmother? And then she said, as they kept talking, I realized what was happening there. It was that he was feeling such love pouring into him from her eyes that she was looking at him like his grandmother must have looked at him. And there was a, just an unconditional, non-judgmental love. No fear, no judgment, just love, right? And so that's the kind of love you're talking about here. That's yeah, and I thought it was a. Uh, I thought that I would pause to say that from a leadership standpoint, uh, I don't believe that when you when you place yourself in the esteemed role of a leader, you have to have this a, this a natural tendency to love people. You have to. Well, anyway, you don't have to love you. You don't have to love them in a you know, in a, in a familial sense, but you have to at least like the people that you're around if you're going to step into the role of leader, right? Um, and and then when you bring the, the word love into it, I think of servant leadership, right? And that's the whole reason we named this podcast Love in Action is servant leadership is choosing love unconditionally. It's the, in, the, it's the Greek agape love right it's a regard for other human beings right and so and that's to me that's a choice that you have to make before you step into those shoes right because it's a huge responsibility uh and i think that if we have more leaders that were able to to love in the sense that you're speaking of as that inner core that we have developed that inner core we, we would have uh, less turnover in the world, less conflict, less, you know, quiet quitting and all of this stuff that we're seeing now. Great resignation. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. Yeah. And um, and these are, you know, these are the small steps we can take. You know, we just talked about sowing some of those seeds, just uh, practice more appreciation, practice more mm. gratitude. You know, gradually you just naturally grow into feeling that kind of loving connection with with others. Yeah. And then, then that third stage is some of the barriers we put in front of us that actually you know, eliminate the conditions for love, right? That make us less engaged and interested and empathetic with people. And those are the barriers, like when we quickly judge them, you know, or when we uh, invite in ourselves the capacity to hate. And the provocative thesis I'm making in the book is that when you hate or develop the habit of hate, even for some small community of people, some individuals or some groups because you stand so vastly opposed to them in terms of the values of behavior, that's a very dangerous place to go. 
Mm. Because uh, you have trained some neurons in your brain to specialize in that activity of hate. You know, hate means that you're taking pleasure in somebody else's pain. And when you do that, then what happens is in your everyday moments, sometimes even your loved ones, even people, you know, at work may disappoint you, may sometimes hurt you with what they don't do or what they do and say and what have you. And in those moments, impulsively, we tend to very quickly put them into that hate bucket. And then for a short period of time, this could be a fleeting second where you just say something cynical or condescending or critical just to get back at them. You know, or you act, you know, a certain behavior over a period of the next couple of days because you're so consumed with that feeling of wanting to hurt them because, you know, you've trained that part of your brain to be good at that and you just put them into that part of your brain for a moment. And there's research to show that, you know, um, people in romantic relationships experience two predominant emotions at times, you know, with their loved ones. One is love, but the other is hate. Because the more you love them, the more when they hurt you, you know, you have this impulse to go there unless you have been really working on that quality to just completely expunge hate from your heart, completely expunge. So there's no neuron in your brain that knows how to hate at all. Yeah. So those are the weeds we have to pull out. Judgment, hatred. And the third one I put out there is grudges. Anytime you feel hurt or mistrusted or betrayed by somebody, we can choose to do what we need to from the outside. I call that like the choice of whether you should forgive from the outside or not. But from the inside, there is just no logic for holding on to that grudge. There's just no logic that will be of you know support and service to you. And so the capacity to forgive from inside, to keep your heart really pure, becomes a critical enabler, a weed that you want to pull out, this grudging weed, so that you can, you know, re really again create the conditions for, for love. And then the fourth stage is is um is, you know, I call that pruning the branches because you've got to make love strong, you've got to make love viable. And every now and then with a plant, you have to prune the branches. And with love, what that means is that you don't want to be a doormat. You don't want to have people take advantage of you. You don't want to give so much of yourself that you haven't made enough time for yourself to preserve what you need to do to nurture your own spirit and rejuvenate yourself. And so making the hard calls, making the hard decisions, you know, taking, taking kind of space and time for yourself, putting, putting certain boundaries in place, you know, learning to say no to certain things, you know, all of that. That is a critical also component of love uh, because what you want to do is infuse that energy of wisdom and purpose and growth into your love energy and be make it more complete that way so that you're looking out for people's long-term interests not just for the immediate gratification you're looking out for the collective interest for a team or society or family not just for this one person who is in front of you who you want to please you know etc so that's the pruning of the branches and then the last one, which given the title of your podcast is so, you know, so resonant, right? Um, the last one is to make love bloom. And once you uprooted the weeds and create, put the seeds in and prepare the soil and all of that, you, you make love bloom and you do that by putting love into action. And not just that, but putting love into every action. Um, and, and, and that means that never allow yourself to be paralyzed that, oh my God, you know, my company is going through layoffs. I'm this manager. I have 200 people under me. I have to, I have to lay, you know, 20% of them off. That's the, you know, that's the order that I'm getting from senior management. And so there's no way I can be loving right now. No, find a way to put your love into action. One of the CEOs of an organization that, you know, I was working with said that he had in the past had to go through a painful downsizing and what he did in that moment is that he shared with all his managers who had to 
um, do that move with one or two of the direct reports is he said, I want you to do that with love and care and grace. And then what I want you to do is six months from now, put it in your calendar that you're going to reach out to this individual, invite them out for lunch. Hopefully they give you that opportunity and sit down and check in with them and ask them how they're doing. And if there's anything that you can do practically with our resources over the yours to be of service to them, to be of help to them. So that was one way of putting love into action, even though you can't yeah. like perfectly solve every problem. Yeah, yeah. Something interesting that I want to uncover with you here uh, and is the sequence of your stages. So you, you said, you know, you, we pre prepare the soil, the stage one, and then we plant the seeds and then we remove the, the seeds. I'm sorry, remove the weeds. That's stage three. Some people aren't even able to see the uh, there aren't even able to prepare the soil to, to put good seeds of gratitude, appreciation, empathy, because there's so much weeds in the way, the weeds of hatred and grudges and judgment. So I'm wondering is, is for some people, is it that they have to pull the weeds out first to be able to then prepare the soil or what, what's, what's the, uh, tell, help me with, with the rationale behind uh, removing the weeds as a third stage. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. I am not going to claim any kind of authoritative sort of, you know, position on this. And so, you know, I perfectly respect and appreciate, you know, that um, some of us might find it most uh, practical to start with stage three instead of stage one, you know, or, or stage two. Uh, and I invite readers, you know, in the early you know part of the book to be open to that self-reflection and choice making on their side. At the same time, I'll tell you what sort of um, led me to talk about preparing the soil as stage one, um, and then the um, the 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 uh, uprooting the weeds became became a later stage. So Malcolm X, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this man, um, an incredibly charismatic and fierce and purpose-driven life, you know, one that paralleled in many ways Martin Luther King's, you know, for around the same era, 1950s, 60s. And um, both son of, you know, ministers, uh, preachers, uh, both pursuing civil liberties in America, one taking the path of love and more inclusive invitation to all of America to rise to, you know, the better angels of his nature. The other one, you know, kind of creating a little bit more of a divisive view that, look, I mean, blacks are just going to have their own unique identity and whites have theirs and the whites are the devil and they've done all of these terrible things, you know, to the blacks for centuries. And, and the only way to get out of that is to assert and to do so from a place of recognizing that we have to just fight for ourselves as the black community. And, you know, he went through tremendous evolution and reform, Malcolm X, which is why he's somebody who really inspires me. Um, but the ultimate, ultimate form of that reform came in the final year of his life when he went to, you know, Mecca on a pilgrimage, um, you know, uh, and uh, the Hajj pilgrimage, you know, for, for the Muslims. And somehow there his heart melted and he just felt so deeply connected with the universe, so deeply loved. And he, you know, I'm not saying that based on my psychoanalysis of him. I'm saying that on the basis of what his words are in yeah. his own writings and his own reflections. And this man, Malcolm X, you know, unlike Martin Luther King, who had a very loving upbringing in his family, who got a lot of support and love, and he saw so much harmony between his parents, Malcolm X, of his own storytelling, tells us how much of a 
you know, the challenge it was, you know, growing up in the sense of the, you know, the climate at home, the early passing of his father, prior to that, the fighting between his father and his mother, um, the ultimate mental health decline of his mother, you know, and all kind of in some ways, understandably so, given the really difficult conditions in which they were living. But coming from that paucity, that poverty, you know, of the heart, you know, from those early years, it kind of like got him to this place where he just didn't have the capacity to 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 fully embrace, right? I mean, he yeah. was embracing the black community, but he wasn't able to fully embrace. But when he went on that Hajj, something melted and changed, and he came out a reformed individual and became so much as closer to his fullest potential and his core. And he said, I have changed. I've always had the courage to change my mind. And then I and now don't see the world as black and white. I see us as, as one unified humanity. And I see as much goodness in many of the whites who are fighting for our cause as well, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And and so it's so beautiful to see that final stage, the final chapter of his life, painfully so cut short by his uh, assassination at the age of 39, just like Martin Luther King lost his life coincidentally also at the age of 39, also to an assassination. So, you know, if you look at that Martin and then Malcolm X story. I have to I have to confess that like to me what it reveals is that there was something that happened where he just started to feel so loved by the universe that from there on he just couldn't help but just also love the universe. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Hey Dendra, I I want to I want to just touch a little bit more and just dig a little deeper uh, no pun intended here we're talking about soil and removing the weeds but <laughs> i want to get to the point where we actually remove the weeds so i'm st i'm stuck on stage three only because i see see we're in unique times right now we can't have a uh a normal discourse with neighbors coworkers, uh without conversation becoming politicized um, and it seems to me that that this whole divisiveness that we are seeing now where we can't come to the table is coming from a place of hatred and and holding grudges against somebody that doesn't think like we do or believe as we do. Right. And and so there is a lot of weeds and I think the weeds are so tall. We aren't able to see over them uh, to the other side. So I want to ask you for actions or. Um, Things that we need to do, whether it's you know a positive psychology hack, <laughs> uh, or um, or or something that points the way forward to just chopping down those weeds, so that we are able to get to the point of having good soil to plant good seeds. So, how do we remove the weeds when everything is so charged with hatred right now? Yeah, <clears throat> it is um, something that causes you know tremendous pain um tremendous pain to me um i moved to america in my early 20s and have over the years gained so much from this country gained so much from even the inspiration i have of the growth and evolution you know of democracy in america and to see it start to flail about in the present conditions uh, both at an institutional level uh, societal level, but also at an individual level and home level, you know, with the increasing, um, you know, mental health and uh, drug addiction and other crises that we are being hit upon by. Um, it, it just reveals to me that somehow 
there are some things we have been doing right always, and then there are other things that probably are in need for reform, are in need for reflection and a humbling, you know, of our worlds to recognize that some things need to change. Um, so to the question you asked, um, one of the things I've been reflecting on is how um as we grow up, you know, we're taught, you know, we're we're given these stories, you know, whether it's Disney stories or fairy tales or um you know, the mythologies of different cultures. And essentially in these stories, you typically have the good guys and the bad guys. And very quickly, our brain gets trained into this idea that if you're telling me a story, I need to very quickly figure out, okay, who's the hero and then who's mm. the villain in the story, you know? And um, now we are applying that to any disagreement that we have with each other in society that, well, if you're going to agree with me, then you're a hero. And if you're going to disagree with me, then you're my villain, you know? <laughs> um, and so what if we actually challenge that core idea itself? What if heroes can be villains and villains can be heroes, you know? And you might think, okay, well, what exactly does that mean? Um, let's take a recent, uh, you know, moment in, 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 in our lives, right? So we, we have an environmental crisis that, you know, some of us are very energized and concerned about and want to do something about. And one of the things we want to do is move away from fossil fuel, you know, towards more green energy. Um, and so we then start to see the Chevrons and the Exxons and the, you know, British Petroleums and all. We, we start to see them as the villains mm -hmm. because they're the ones who are doing all this pollution and they have so much invested in kind of preserving the old order. And then we get hit by this energy crisis, you know, over the last several months and energy prices are shooting through the roof. The people who are getting most hurt by that are amongst our poorest brothers and sisters, mm. right? Because those who are very affluent, I mean, fine, you know, the fuel price of the gas tank is gone, you know, is, is, you know, is the fuel pump has gone from $3 to 5 to 6 to 7 uh, It's okay. But for those, you know, who, who have limited income, it really matters. Yeah. So at this point, who are the heroes? You know, mm -hmm. who are the heroes? Isn't it the companies who are pumping out as much fuel as they can to help bring down that like really punishing economic conditions that some people have been thrust into? And so Biden goes to Saudi Arabia to ask for more oil. And, you know, we start to soften ourselves up to fracking and other forms of, you know, uh, fuel generation that may take us a little bit closer to the non-green sources of energy, right? Yeah, and yeah. so suddenly you realize that actually speaking, if it wasn't for the Chevron, and you know, I have nothing, you know, I have no interest in these individuals. I don't, I don't really in these companies. I don't invest in these companies or anything. But just fundamentally, if it wasn't for these organizations today that are actually doing a lot of fossil fuel generation, economically our lives would be chaos, you know, in, in the world. So suddenly the villains became heroes. And mm. on the other hand, what do I mean by heroes become villains? Well, you know, all of us who are, let's say, on the side of wanting to preserve and protect the environment, wanting to really make a case for fighting against global warming, wanting to actually push the world more into green investments and all of that. You know, actually speaking, let's just take an honest look at how much energy we consume every day. You know, in the US, the average per capita consumption of energy is about 30 to 40 times more than what it is in many other parts of the world, like in the Southern Hemisphere. Now, imagine if in our quest to help develop the whole world into democracy and capitalism and material advancements and all of that. And our businesses are going to those countries to set up like their, you know, ways to kind of now operate and consume and all of that. If those countries start to aspire to an American, so, so to say, standard of living, and they also start to increase the energy consumption to be at the American level of the energy consumption model. There are billions of people there. 
Yeah. Millions of people getting to this level, it's going to be completely unsustainable. Today it's unsustainable. At that point, it'll be completely unsustainable. That's what Gandhi meant. The world doesn't have enough to satisfy everybody's greeds. So then we have to take a look within and say, yeah. is it possible that we are living with greed? We are not living with needs that actually we can consume less and that will put less strain on our planet. And yeah. maybe we as heroes are actually the villains where the way to really solve the energy crisis is to go within and say, what are some lifestyle changes I can make to just consume less energy? You know, anyway, so that, and, and you know, I, I really am not making a case here for how to solve the environmental problem. I'm just making a case here for what, you know, value there is to shake up and wake up a thinking once we start to see things in more nuanced terms less in black and white terms, less in quick rush to judgment terms, less in sort of the bad guys versus the good guys terms, and more from a place of humble curiosity to, you know, see things in a more textured way and recognize that truth is more nuanced than this quick kind of way of dichotomizing and polarizing the world. Yeah, yeah, we're all entrenched and waiting for the bomb to drop. We need to come out of our trenches. And you know, it, I'm going to bring this full circle by saying something that you you said earlier. We are restricted by our own imagination, and I'll even say by our own worldview. Yeah, and, uh, and we need to break out of that status quo. That's so beautiful. That's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, as we wind down here, uh, I always ask this question: uh, what, What's your ultimate hope for people reading your book? Yeah, my, my hope is that um, you find something in it that deeply connects with your soul and that it invites you to take on some one practice from any of the five energies that you want to make your own. And that you look back two to five years later and realize you went back and reread certain passages in that book a few times and over time started to not just read and intellectualize, but live, you know, live those ideas in your own life. Yeah, that's great. All right. We always ask our guests a the leadership love question. And so I pose you the question. It goes like this. Of all the ideas that we discussed, uh, or maybe something that we haven't covered yet, in your own words, how do we lead with love day in and day out? Yeah. Um, Dr. Robert Pearl is the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and he's uh, doing some beautiful work, beautiful work around uh, challenging and advancing change in the healthcare industry. And he's written a book called Uncaring. And so I'm going to quote from him really, uh, where he says, you know, we're not really training our medical school students um, and preparing them to be doctors and nurses and all that in, in, in just the ideal way, the right way. We're giving them a lot of science and technical training. But what about, you know, in some ways, uh, the training of the heart, right? Um, you know, training of empathy. And so he says, you know, sometimes they prescribe and misprescribe and overprescribe and, you know, all of that in the zealous quest to kind of like just be heroes, you know, for their patients and try to prevent them under at every cost, you know, to kind of not not face death or, or you know, et cetera. Um, and he says, like, what if, you know, we were to train them to just um, look at the person in front of them that they're serving in that moment and advising and guiding as a doctor and just ask themselves, if this was my sister, if this was my mother, if this was my daughter, you know, how would I be dealing with her? You know, what would I mm -hmm. be saying to her and doing with her? And um, and so I think that's my invitation for us, you know, to um, put our love into action is to, you know, think about, you know, a person that you, you know, have just deep love and affection and caring for. And then when you see the person in front of you, you know, visualize that if this was that person, how would you want to act with them? 
Beautifully put, beautifully put. All right, we bring it home with two questions as we do with every guest. Personally, Hitendra, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? It's it's what you talked about, you know, this uh, fraying, you know, of the fabric of society that we are, you know, kind of seeing. And um, it's tugging at me because I see so many possibilities for America to continue to rise to a next level of greatness. You know, when Abraham Lincoln in his pursuit of trying to keep the country united and, you know, work on the dissolution of slavery, you know, when he was kind of doing all that he was doing, he had this idealized view of a, uh, you know, democratic nation and ultimately a beacon of light for the world that would be a place where everyone had the right to rise. Everyone had the right to rise. And he realized that it wasn't going to be all achieved in his own life, that he was just merely going to play, you know, a certain small little role and then pass the baton on to the next generation. And of course, that baton has kept getting passed on and now it's passed on to us and we will pass it on to the next generation. But let us recognize and aspire to that idealized form or whatever it is that you think is a world where people live in harmony with each other. But most importantly, it starts with living in harmony with yourself. And so the talk that I'm going through is, what is it that we are going to do in this moment of time? How do we show up and how do we relate and collaborate in order to take the world within our families, our communities, within our teams, within our organizations, in whatever sphere of influence that you have, to bring it a little bit closer to that idealized version that you are most inspired to make happen for the world. Mm. And finally, you get to close us out your way with that one key takeaway to keep us inspired. Let your inner core shine through in everything you do. Let your inner core shine through in, in, in everything you do. Well stated. Yeah. And speaking right to the core of your book. The book, again, is called Inner Mastery, Outer Impact. If you're watching on YouTube, there's the cover. And Hitendra, if people want to connect with you, where can they go? Thank you. There is my personal website, hitendra.com. So that's H-I-T-E-N-D-R-A.com. You will see some um, articles. You will see uh, my podcast, Intersections. And you will also see an opportunity to sign up for my newsletter. Um, in addition, for those of us who are in organizations and who are drawn to the work that um, I and my team is are doing in the area of culture and leadership, um, feel free to join us at Mentora Institute, which is mentora.institute. Um, and then also a foundation through which we are working towards building change makers for today's time. We have a youth change maker program for college kids that just got launched. I'm super excited about it, deeply committed to it. And um, so if any of you have college going kids or you are college going yourself, feel free to explore mentora.foundation to see if there might be an opportunity for you or your kin to be involved with our foundation. I said I was going to take notes and folks, I wasn't kidding. It's about one page deep. Can't tell there on the screen. <laughs> But uh, Hitendra, it's been such an honor and a pleasure spending time with you today. Uh, uh, we're all better for it. Thanks so much. Oh, I'm very grateful. Thank you, too. And all the best to your listeners and your paths to pursuing both inner and outer success. I appreciate that. And you can keep the conversation going on social media and comment on this episode with hashtag Love in Action podcast. And as always, look for the show notes. Um, to this episode, which includes all of Hitendra's contact information, website, etc. And you can find that on marcelschwantis.com. And finally, we're always looking for sponsors to help spread this love in action movement globally. 
If you have an interest, you can reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow. 